Today, uh, if you haven't noticed, we are talking about murder. Star Wars! (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker. It feels like being served at a four-star restaurant, and for no reason in particular, the waiter is Kenneth Branagh, and he is cutting my food for me, and he is scooping up my, my potatoes, and he is putting dollops of gravy over everything, and he is shoveling it gingerly into my mouth. I'm like, can you... Here can, comes the airplane. Can you please just let me eat my fucking food? Like, you don't know. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to... It's like, oh, you got to cut out this gristle and stuff. Like, well, maybe I kind of like the gristle. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the remake of the Murder on the Orient Express. This version is directed by and stars Kenneth Rana. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there, everybody, and welcome into episode 134 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with Toussaint Egan. Hello. Ooh, that's really good for podcasting. I know. You just... You didn't have to describe it, man. You kind of had to. That was for us. Okay. Well, unfortunately, now everybody knows. Oh, great. Also, Nick Cheney here. Oui, mon ami. Alonzi. Uh-huh. There has been a murder. Who is the culprit? I am the greatest detective in the world. Maybe. Everyone is a suspect. Possibly. Mm Mm-hmm. So, today, uh, if you haven't noticed, we are talking about murder. Star Wars! (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker! <laughs> Why do you do this? I don't know. Do you have to ask at this point? Yes. <laughs> we are talking about Murder on the Orient Express, uh, the 2017 version uh, that is directed by and stars Kenneth Branagh, because you know that never comes off as up your own ass or anything. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's a very Kenneth Branagh thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Up your own mustache. <laughs> Alex, please. <laughs> Can't. There's no stopping him when he gets started. Just like the train. Oh, wait, but there was a snowbank. Yeah. That's true. Yep, that just crashed. So, uh, as with the usual Murder on the Orient Express story, we have a, a large cast here of, of pretty much names that most people would know. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a few of them. I thought you just said dames. Like, what are we going to do? And dames, yes. <laughs> Little. Well, there noir. is one dame. There is a dame. Dame but... Judy Dench. Right. She is here. Along with Penelope Cruz, Willem Dafoe, Daisy Ridley, Daisy Ridley, Leslie Odom Jr. Yes, Leslie Odom Jr. Olivia Coleman, Olivia Coleman, a ballerina, Josh Gad, a ballerina, <laughs> and Johnny Depp. Yeah, and a other others. people. Yes. Yeah. So the story of Murder on the Orient Express uh, surrounds a lavish train ride that unfolds into a stylish and suspenseful mystery. So, yeah, couldn't get that from a title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, really, the driving force behind this episode was 
my friend Choo-choo. Nicholas, mm-hmm. uh, who Choo-choo. is a big fan of the story, not yeah. necessarily Kenneth any... Branagh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Hey, man, you loved that Cinderella film, right? I never saw it. It's probably okay. I forgot that came out. <laughs> yeah. y- yes. Um, so. <laughs> You were just struggling here. That's fine. Nobody has to know except for so us excited. and everybody else who yeah. listens. So, Nick, why don't you start us off? Because I know you you were excited about this, and I'm interested to know what you thought about uh, this version, which has not really gotten uh, much publicity. Yes, thank you. Um, he is the Hercule Poirot <laughs> of our podcast. Hercule Apollo. Uh, I do no. not slay the lion. <laughs> I absolutely love Murder on the Orient Express, the novel, the original Christie, uh, Agatha Christie, for those who aren't in the know, uh, uh, the original novel that she put out. Um, Poirot is definitely one of my favorite literary characters. You can have your Sherlock Holmes and shove it up your butt. Yeah. Shove it in your pipe. Yeah, there you go. Um, So I've always loved this uh, story. It's probably, it's easily one of my favorite novels ever written, and it's definitely probably my favorite just mystery ever written. Um, And I've always loved adaptations of it, because I think it's such an inherently cinematic story. It's uh, just from the the line alone, all the world elects to <laughs> ride on the Orient tonight. Like that is from the novel, but that feels like it was written for a movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's got this uh, wonderfully uh, star-crossed view of the world mm-hmm. and and of its inhabitants. So it feels very dramatic, very grandstanding, as yes. though like it should be played out on a stage or on a screen. So. Absolutely, yeah. and <laughs> every adaptation that we've gotten. I mean, I haven't seen minor ones, like weird TV movies that aired who knows when or whatever, but I've seen the two major ones, which is Sidney Lumet's film, the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express, where Albert Finney played Poirot, um, and I've seen the, in my opinion, the definitive Murder on the Orient Express, mostly because it's played by David Suchet, who was the definitive Poirot, which kind of makes all the difference half the time. Um, when he did his, his show Poirot, where they filmed uh, an episode for every single novel and a short story. that pro- There are 70 episodes for every single story. For every Poirot. Oh, yes. wow, that's awesome. For every, yeah, it kind of started out as like where what happened was the BBC wanted to do Poirot on TV because why wouldn't they? Like mm-hmm. That's their cash cow and right. just like Miss Marple and other stuff. Um, but when they, when they started in the 80s, they're like, why don't we just do uh, a weekly show in which we do like 50-minute episodes of her short stories because not everybody's really dug into those. Well, after they kind of ran out of short stories, they're like, David Suchet is Poirot. And so David Suchet basically went on record saying, if BBC will allow it and pay for it, I will commit to doing every single story. That's awesome. And they did it from the 80s to the show finally ended in 2013. Like mm-hmm. they, they, they would take a few years off in between some seasons, but they stayed committed to doing it. And uh, their murder on the Orient Express didn't even come out until like the second to last season. So like... It, Anyway, it was a long time. It's a big project, and anybody who's ever been interested in Agatha Christie but never wants to read them, yep. go go watch that show. Uh, used to be on Netflix, but they took it off because they're stupid. Yeah. So anyway, I love Murder on the Orient Express. I think I was, I'm was i a little surprised because I like Brano's version more than I thought I would. Hmm. He adheres to the story pretty closely. Uh, there are a few crucial mistakes, and I'm going to go into the mistakes first. Um, 
for one thing, uh, Brano does did indulge in what I didn't think he was going to be able to uh, stay away from, which is theatricality versus just the pared down um, exposition of the story, which is that he favors uh, gunfights and weird snow chases over uh, Poirot just thinking, which I get is not an uh, it's not a very sexy thing to show on uh, screen. But that's what the story is, and you can, if you're not a good enough director to pull that off, then you probably shouldn't be attempting to do it in the first place. Yeah. Um, a few other things that he very much messes up uh, is, A, early on when Poirot is interrogating certain passengers, he starts cross-cutting, and you cannot do that in Murder on the Orient Express uh, especially. Every interrogation is its own chapter right. in the original novel. These are supposed to be taken at face value. The idea of the enjoyment you get out of Murder on the Orient Express is listening to Poirot interrogate the passengers uninterrupted so you can try to follow along with these outlandish alibis and uh, tell or tall tales that are told. And for Brana to start cross-cutting as if these aren't important to truly uh, milk uh, in is kind of upsetting because he clearly doesn't understand uh, what makes Poirot Poirot. What's up? I think that the way that you're describing it is like he's not really focusing on it as a he's putting more emphasis on murder than he is on mystery and it's yeah. more of like sounds like he's trying to edit it in the vein of like an episode of CSI almost yeah and in, and trying to inject like these these unnecessary like quick cuts uh, cutaways and action sequences that just kind of like diverge from like what the core appeal of this is I mean the Crux is still here, obviously. Right, right, yeah. You like it. Like, like, he doesn't but... stray so far from right. it, but he does... Uh, he shows his hand. Yeah. And um, one other nitpick I'm going to get into, and then I'll kind of praise a few things, is that I don't understand... Um, I don't understand why Brana literally spends too much time focused on the red herrings of this case, which it should be given time. I'm not saying that it's stupid that he kept them, but he doesn't have his character, Poirot, spout off the actual big clues that mm-hmm. help him break his case. Right. He, okay, so we spent quite a bit of time on the red kimono and the, um, the, the the conductor's uniform, mm. which are actually essential to like he, he has to go down those paths in order to realize how ridiculously convoluted this is. Because mm. every time this story gets more confusing, he's that much closer to realizing how fabricated this all is. So right. all of that is important. These aren't red herrings in the simple. Uh, derogatory way that some people talk about red herrings when it comes to mystery. Mm. Everything, it, I, the thing should the tagline should not be uh, everyone's a suspect. It should be everything's a clue. That's basically yeah. kind of what, uh, and then that's kind of his. Brano's probably. I think uh, that was more winking into odd. It was more winking and obvious to people who already are familiar with yeah. what Murder in the Orient Express. I, I mean, I, I've seen it before. I've seen it once, and I very much enjoyed it. I haven't seen it as many times as you have. I yeah. haven't even read the original uh, Christie novel, and I actually do want to go back to it now. It's really for, good. Yeah, like of, of course it's Agatha Christie, but um, I feel like that's more of a obvious wink to people who are familiar with the yeah. uh, with, with the story for sure speaking of red yeah. herrings while you're while you're on the subject mm-hmm. uh, as someone who had 
never seen or read anything about who didn't even necessarily know the reveal of it. So it was very right. new for me. Um, I remember thinking that this part of the film was, was not that great and kind of bizarre, but uh, you told me that this was completely original to this story and stupid. <laughs> uh, and that was uh, the knife getting stabbed into Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, that was really <sighs> fucked up uh, in the novel. Mrs. First of all, Mrs. Hubbard is very crucial to this story, not mm-hmm. because she should have the most screen time or anything like that, but she is, as we find out in this version too, so that is faithful, that she is the orchestrator of this entire thing. Like, they're all complicit, but she's the one who assembled these people. and um, Avengers assembled. <laughs> and she's the one that is, uh, shall we say, still in charge as this thing is playing out. So... In the novel, it's as simple as the moment Poirot is getting slightly... I forget what lead he's following, but once he's following a lead that is getting dangerously close, she introduces a new hiccup, which is she just gives over the knife by saying, oh my god, I found the knife, the murder weapon, in my bag, which is actually clever because it once again reinforces the story she told earlier, which is that there was a man man, in her... So it. As a first-time viewer or reader, it actually works to start to strengthen her story, even though it's so blatantly, like, coincidental. It's like, oh, but she did say there was a man. You know what I mean? So it's just wonderfully paced in that aspect. But, yeah, the idea that in this it's like, oh, the killer was able to stab me, but I didn't get a good look at him behind like that. Because he was shrouded in shadows. It's almost (laughs) as if he was black. (laughs) Yeah, and yeah, then they, they, they take, I guess, Colonel Arbuthnot, uh, who's not really supposed to be a doctor. Um, yeah, as to, well, thank God he's on the train, so that was like, well, he was always going to be on the train, but right. whatever. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was fucked up. I don't understand what the point of that was. Um, and so going back for one more thing uh, about the clues that Brana refuses to, to, to... And normally I'm like all for a movie that won't spell everything out. Right. But that's what Poirot does. Isn't his, that... His, yeah. The only fun in reading a Poirot story is for when he says, let me tell you how it was done. You know what I mean? So it's like... so the, It's not like Sherlock Holmes where he just like is withholding throughout the entire yes. story and then it's like... It's like... It's like Sherlock or or Hardy Boys where they withhold everything and then yeah. they explain everything. And it's just like, is that really – like how the no, fuck yeah. did you actually draw that conclusion? Like working with Poirot is yes. what is rewarding. And Poirot in every story will always say what he's thinking out loud the moment he knows it. Like if he's only thinking it, then yes, he won't – he's always very careful not to make false accusations or whatever. But he does not wait till the end of the story to say, well, I know that that alibi is false because I, you know, whatever. So here are some crucial things that actually lead him to presenting the two solutions, and in this case, knowing that the second solution is the real. Um, one, uh, Poirot never in this version points out the obvious, which is that he was clued into the fact that these alibis were pretty much suspicious from the start from the moment he heard McQueen say that Ratchet doesn't know French. Yeah, that's what I, I, I right. know too. Yeah. And it's like it's in the movie. Like It's not like you can't draw that conclusion, but he 
he has to state that explicitly because mm-hmm. that's the start of his thread when right. he starts to pull it apart. That's why he needed me. He couldn't read a word of French, and then right. the conductor but this movie comes pretend by. like that doesn't happen. Like I think this movie wants Poirot to be more of a genius, like a savant, when that's not what he is. Um, another mm-hmm. thing it's is played by Kenneth Branagh, so he wants to be a savant. So. Yes. Um, the other thing that he fixates on, and he never once says it out loud in this movie, which I don't get, is that. The thing that makes him go to the passengers and say, I know it's all you, is actually not a clue about the murder. He goes on a monologue about how he started revisiting the entire timeline of this train ride in his head. And it starts at the beginning, even before there was a murder. And he said, I thought about the conversation that he has with uh, Montezor Buk in the dining car when Montezor Buk points out that only in America would you have a melting pot of personalities and nationalities and ethnicities. And then he makes the connection that they must all be from America at some point, and this is not a coincidence. Right. This is not it, – it, it is only in America, so therefore what are they all doing on this train? Mm-hmm. And and that's how he's also starting. That's when he then goes – A train from Istanbul to – Yes, and that's when he literally goes from that thought process to going pedantically to every car and every passenger and figuring out their um, – connection to Daisy Armstrong mm-hmm. and whatnot. And it's not like random because here in the movie he's like, oh, you must be the cook, I'm guessing. And, oh, you must be the chauffeur. And somehow he's just right. Okay, <laughs> he knows she's the cook because, and Brana does not give enough justice to this, but when the <clears throat> when the maid is ordering for Princess Dragon Mira, um She's supposed to give a very idiosyncratic order, which says that she knows a lot about food. See, there's all these little bits and pieces that helps Poirot figure this out on a small scale uh, that Brana seems slightly afraid. Lost on him. Well, I would say afraid to allow a modern audience to relish in those little details. He needs things like a red kimono, and which are very important clues, right. and the conductor's button. Like he thinks that those are the, but those are the things that Poirot knows to ignore, <laughs> and somehow they're kind of the most whatever. Why is Josh Gad running away from him? I don't know because that never happens in the in the book. Um, because he's trying to burn those, those the ledgers, but that... he also admits yeah. that he's not really like a. He knows that Poirot's not there to investigate that, so I don't see why he would be. But yeah, no, that's mm. a complete fabrication. Yeah. Um, Mc, McQueen is supposed to be a drunk, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, well, the, the the other thing that I noticed early on uh, here, which which made me think something that when I brought this up to you, Nick, you told me was that has nothing to do with any previous iteration of this story. Uh, And that is that um, I was starting to think that um, Ratchet's character knew who all the people were on the train. That was the final thing I was going to mention. Because um, at least Penelope Cruz's character knows who he is because she saw him in the scene when he comes in to actually kidnap the the child so yeah but how many years ago no, no, was, was well, that in the story clearly they haven't forgotten about it no but, but here's no, 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 no but, but 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 how many i'm asking how many years was four it years four years that's it it's no more than five mm. okay. yeah it's only supposed to be that okay um here's the thing in the original novel the is very understandable because ratchet did not kidnap the child he is a mob boss who ordered his second in command to go do it 
And then the second in command was tried and executed, which is why a lot of, even though everybody kind of knew that there was a, um, a uh, Cassetti, right. uh, but the, the spotlight died down and he was able to just kind of Roman Polanski his way out of the country, so to speak. Why? So the fact that he makes him the kidnapper mm-hmm. makes no sense in, in, in the face of all this. Why do yeah. you think they did that in order to inject more screen time for Johnny Depp as Cassetti? Not more screen time because he pretty much gets exactly what he was supposed to as far as, like, besides the flashbacks themselves. Um, I think Brano repeatedly cuts out characters because he thinks it's already unwieldy, which I guess it is, but that's part of the fun. It's supposed to be this ridiculous web of characters mm. because, A, Colonel Arbuthnot should not be a doctor um, because there's an actual doctor on board, yeah. and the doctor and Monsieur Bouc are Poirot's sounding board, mm-hmm. which is important because his sounding boards should faithfully be two people that are not involved with the case. Like, why does he routinely... Uh, allow Dr. Arbuth not to give his, you know, opinion of the murder and whatnot when he should be a suspect. It makes no sense. Yeah. Um, so I think that was just another instance of him cutting out a character where he thought that there didn't need to be another character. But so anyway, one more thing I'll say. Right. So those are all the nitpicks, and I probably have some more. Mm-hmm. Overall, though, I think Brownell kind of did nail it as a propulsively fun blockbuster adaptation of it. I was surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. Mm-hmm. I think Brana was actually a pretty decent Paul Rowe who did not stretch beyond his limits. I like the fact that he didn't go full Belgian because he would not have been able to stay mm-hmm. in that accent, I think, for as much as he'd have to. So I appreciated that he was more just uh, extenuated rather than accented. Um and overall, I actually really liked the cast. I thought just about all of them besides the ballerina. I don't know why there needed to be an actual ballerina to randomly slam the table and say, no! Uh, that made no sense. Uh, but overall, like I, I had fun with it. I uh, One other thing is I absolutely love the score. Um, hmm. I've actually been listening to it, which is the first oh. time for a while that I've listened to like an actual score for yeah. a film. The even if it's not my favorite scene, the score, the piano suite that plays over the revelations mm-hmm. and the tribunal yeah. is a really gorgeous piece of music, and I really enjoy that. So mm-hmm. I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm going to pass it on now. Yeah. Okay. Um, could I go next? Sure. Yeah. Um, Nick, I, I first just want to say thank you for that that overview of your. Um, no your, problem, your, your sort of insights about this because I know that this is one of your favorite stories and honestly you sort of like parsing through it and like notching through like the things that you liked and what you didn't like about it helped to bring clarity to my own thoughts about this that I sort of just kind of insinuated from a, a first viewing yeah. in particular. I think that um, Kenneth Branagh is a – I think he is a company man playing at a thespian. I think that's why he overacts as much as he does and I think that's why he – um, took on the task of not only adapting Murder on the Orient Express, but also injecting himself, or of course himself, as 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 Hercule Poirot with his ridiculous mustache, which I actually did not mind as much as I did in in the first trailer. I thought that was going to annoy the shit out of me. I was like, no, it's like it just it just once sort of you there. get over yeah it yeah. Uh, it's not as bad I yeah. think as and a. It's supposed to be there. So, I think that he, like if you can't get over it, then you're not supposed to the, watch a Hercule. The reveal Poirot. of it in the initial trailer is like guffawing. And I think right, now that we've seen the movie, it was mm-hmm. intentional. Like yeah. it was probably just him going, "Yes, it's back." Right. He. Um. I, I feel like he really plays up his uh, portrayal of Hercule when he's like 
talking to his picture of his beloved Catherine. Oh, Catherine Mia Moore. And when he's um, so Catherine might be his mother. Oh, because there is no Catherine in any Poirot story that I can Ooh. think of. And the only reason why I say it might be his mother is because a Poirot should not have a love interest. So it might. So it, I think he, that's one of those things that he retroactively kind of like parsed down into. And B, in the score, there's a song called Ma Catherine. Oh. M-A. Ma Catherine. Is he saying Ma Catherine or he's saying My Catherine? But I'm just saying, that's why I'm saying yeah. it might be his mother. Okay. I think that might be, which would make more, even though he shouldn't have a mother. Okay. Well, not shouldn't have <laughs> a mother. He should not Son have a mother. Son of a bitch. Yeah. But I'm saying a, a mother I, is not uh, in, uh, what you call it, right. in the story either. It's not, it's not but that would make more sense than having a lover. I think yeah, that was. But we'll see. That th- that's playing into like sort of my larger critique of of this film in particular. Even even when he's like playing up the whole, uh, I'm I'm reading my Dickens, damn your Dickens, and he's always like chortling at uh at Charles Dickens, uh, a tale of, of <laughs> no, two Charles. cities. And I'm just like, the fuck is so funny about that book? It's like don't like like two like warring families go go at war with one another and fucking people die. Like what are you laughing at? I was like, oh, the prose is just. Oh man, God, you're such a fucking. English major, and I can say that as an English major. Um, but I think that all these criticisms, like, eventually, like, circle back to what I I always had a suspicion of, but like, sort of came into clarity when I was listening to Eunuch, and that I feel like this is this is the same core story. I've seen it once before. I recognize it. I know what the ending was going to be, and I know that the joy of of watching this or even indulging in this story, like you said in the at the end of the previous episode was that it's not about knowing the ending. It's not getting to the end. It's about, it, it's about how we get there. It's about pacing through, like, how do we put together this puzzle box that leads to this ultimate conclusion. That is ultimately what is the, the gratification of watching Murder on the Ordinary Express. Also, just seeing this, uh, this, this character who believed in the stark contrast between good and evil having to be faced with the, 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 the multiplicity of... of of motivations that come into committing a what is supposed to be an evil act that is that is fostered out of like love and catharsis and 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 just a, a, a need for release in a, in a lot of ways. I think that he took a a great story, a great classic story, and he could not help but par it down because he did not overstretch himself. Like you said, I think that he played it safe yeah. because that's he he cut out parts of this of this story that he considered unwieldy. Not because they could not be well, like they cannot be wielded, but because he could not wield them. Yeah, he does not have the the he's the, the ability. Punching his way. He's 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 punching his way, and I feel like there are a lot of um, he he sacrificed sort of the more Byzantine and interesting like knots of the story in the in the core of the story with these bookends uh, that are meant to like have this very evocative imagery, like the opening of the film with uh, in, in Istanbul when you have like the 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 town square and you have all the people like milling about and you have like the score like playing and then you have this boy who's running with a basket. Where's the boy going? Oh my God. It's so Hollywood. It's like, this is such a Brana moment. I know like, I know, I know that Alex liked that, and I can see like liking that. Oh, I like, liked other things about that scene, not that. That felt like some bullshit Steven Spielberg moment. It just, yeah. it just felt very obvious. Mm. It felt, it felt like very, it felt very trite to me. Um, and 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 the whole like Last Supper collection of the <laughs> of, of the suspects that was just so dumb. That was, as far as the tableau of that, that was very unnecessary. Yeah. because the 
image, and I don't mean the image in the movie, but mm-hmm. the image of a Poirot at the front of a dining car in front of them is already, in my opinion, like majestic enough. Right. Uh, especially because of the close quarters of it, no. um, that the suspense of him about to basically make everybody in the room his enemy mm-hmm. is suspenseful. And what I hear, yeah. he's just pointing a gun at them, and it's whatever, but... He just wanted to make an image that he thought would draw a, a powerful emotional response, or at least like, like a, 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 re, cool, a resonant. Yeah, it, but it looked didn't cool. Need to look cool. Exactly. That's that sums up this this film in a nutshell. It looked cool, but it did not need to look cool because all of these these varnishing, these furnishings, like it, it, the 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 digital shots outside of Murder on the or- like uh, outside of the Orient Express when they're pulling out of Istanbul I thought that was fucking beautiful I thought that it was beautiful with the the sun setting I think it's beautiful yeah. at the ending like that those are cool shots I I I will admit that yeah. but I feel like the story is good enough in and of itself that you did not have to strip away those more naughty like middle bits I, in order to indulge like this CGI like the most backdrop. Barana moment of that directorial speaking directorially speaking right. is the fact that the reveal of Ratchet's dead body is off camera. Yeah, that's so overhead. dumb. It made no sense because it's already a mystery that we don't we should be able to see the body. There is no mystery of what they're looking at. So, and then you see the body anyway. So right. why did you decide to not show awkward, us that? Like, oh, what? What are they? Looking What's happening at? in that room? So, anyway, yeah, I, 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 I like the story. I don't love it as much as Nick, and probably that's because I haven't had as much experience with it, and I could see myself loving it. I just did not love this incarnation of it because I felt yeah. like I could have seen this in a better. In, in, a, in a better way. Yeah. So, yeah. So you mentioned Kenneth Branagh playing it safe, and I've mentioned multiple times just talking with you guys and on this very podcast before that I feel like Kenneth Branagh is the most bland director yeah. uh, that's in Hollywood yeah. right now, and I think he still is yeah. after this. Um, he's got to keep up that title, man. Yeah. I mean, he's like the go-to when you want someone who is bland in a way that's safe. classical, though, and yeah. not a marble bland way where... They don't, in my opinion, unless you're a, uh, a James Gunn or even a Waititi, they're never really conscious about what they're putting in a frame and whatnot. And all they know how to do is when people are having a conversation, you put the camera here and then you just go from right to left every time you cut. And it looks dramatic. Yeah. Uh, so he's bland in a more sophist- <laughs> pseudo-sophisticated way, which makes him more palatable to me. Yeah. And I could understand that and he's done previously done some solid work uh, i haven't seen a lot of his other films uh from you know pre-2000 his shakespeare stuff i haven't seen but is actually yeah, well, the, pretty well heralded uh, henry v that's supposed to be pretty good that and much ado about nothing is mm-hmm. i know a lot of people's like favorite shakespeare movie ever so yeah, yeah. um but uh, here, uh, it, for me, coming into this completely fresh, having no idea about the story and and not the ending, so I was you know interested to see what I was going to feel about it. Um, I, I did really enjoy the reveal and the and the shot of everyone coming in and stabbing the body and that kind of thing. It was very interesting to see every single person's reaction regarding it because we had a very kind of I don't want to say sad but even though everyone's slain in bullshit you felt i felt genuine moments from each one of the characters throughout and then you see this just kind of angry just tap 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 Mm -hmm. um and that was you know quite 
a contrast between the rest of, of the story from what we see throughout here. And it's supposed to be a dark ending, and a lot of adaptations mm-hmm. don't realize that. Like a lot of yeah. adaptations are way more amused by the cleverness of it, which is certainly there, mm-hmm. and not at the idea that these 12 very good people decided not to be good anymore. Yeah. Right. Because they realize that good does not yield yeah. justice in its in its own way. And I I did like how it was visible how their individual um, strikes against uh, Cassetti, like because it's it, it's it's the it's working back the reasoning. It's like okay, he has these twelve wounds in his chest, and some of them are more precise than others. More, some of them are more wild. Others are more like like he, methodical. Yeah. It's like yeah, like it, it mirrors the actual like characters. Like shows yeah. what their mentality is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I. I enjoyed that final that final part scene, and I actually enjoyed quite a bit of this of this film, uh, even though I felt like as a whole it didn't really do too much for me. Um, I really did like the opening scene of this, and and I think as someone who who knows really nothing going into this about Perot, does that how you say it? I'm sorry. Poirot. 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 Not like Ross Perot. Like no. Poirot. 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 Yep. Okay. Uh, who doesn't really know much about Poirot uh, at all? I thought that was actually a pretty good introduction yeah. to his character because, uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about the egg balancing and all that shit, but we have... That the, is taken directly from... Yeah, like, but... He, he needs his eggs to be the same size. Yeah, which... So is, I was happy that yeah. they opened with an actual detail and not some kind of like... Hey, newbies? <laughs> or as far as like going over uh, whatever. Yeah. But, um, but we have that entire over-the-top scene, which I actually thought was great for, for that character, especially hearing you uh, describe him throughout the history of film and text. Uh, and we have this whole thing where he thinks of these details afterwards, but at the same time is thinking of them before anyone else is thinking of them. So he's sending... Uh, you know, a security person or a police officer to the gate to guard it because he knows that the actual person is going to run that way. Yeah. And I actually thought the cane thing was somewhat clever. Even I mean, I was chuckled. Silly. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and so I, I really like that whole opening scene, which you were telling me has nothing to do with any previous adaptation. Um, once we get on the train, I, I was interested as the characters move throughout uh, actually quite a bit uh, before the actual murder happens. So that's actually when I, not that I wasn't interested, but I actually thought that the film was not as good as it previously was during all of the interrogation scenes. As we had so many moments that just felt weird to me. Uh, the Josh Gads chase scene I already had mentioned was, was very bizarre. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's just because of the current climate of, of, sexual assault and not that that is involved at all with this but he has this bizarre almost like affinity for daisy ridley's character which i know that that is present in in the actual story but at the same time he keeps going brana doesn't quite uh explain why he would not be infatuated with her but why he needs to keep going back to her yeah but But here it it looks more like infatuation right which is which is what my reading of it was is that he kept you know and he always met with her, and not that he was talking to people, you know, around everybody, but he always had her come very far away from everybody else. So it just made it feel very yeah. bizarre to me. Um, 
That being said, I thought the first, you know, by the f- way, Jessica Chastain played Mary Demonham in David Suchet's really, uh, yeah. It was one of her oh. first roles in anything. Wow. And she's actually very good at it. I kind of want to see it. I, w- I want to we, see it We're going to watch but... it one day because yeah. Toby Jones is Mr. Ratchet. Is he really? Yeah, there's a, there's a good cast on there. Interesting. Anyway. Um, that being said, Daisy Ridley was, yeah. was, I thought she was quite good in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Kenneth Prana was okay in this. I didn't think he was amazing, but he wasn't bad. Uh, I will say, I thought Johnny Depp was fantastic in this film. Even if you yeah. are tired of the whole act, which a lot of people are, as I am as well. So, um, But at the same time, I think he's actually playing a character here and not playing himself play a character. And I, I quite enjoyed it. It makes me queasy to say <laughs> that I actually enjoyed Johnny Depp in this. Because A, I liked, like you're saying, his performance. Mm-hmm. And B, I, whether brought on tension... Uh, this or not, uh, there is something cathartic about f- seeing twelve people want to stab Johnny Depp. Like it, it just it is. Yeah, I've been there. Like if you're gonna cast a villain, cast a real life one. Uh, so um, yeah, I will admit uh, I quite enjoyed him. Yeah, I mean the way he was eating the cake and whatnot. Oh yeah. Like and that in and of itself is actually pretty well done because Ratchet doesn't get a lot of quote-unquote screen time in the novel. I mean, all these scenes, like him offering Poirot money, like it's all in there, but it has to go by pretty quick to get to the murder. So I do think he makes a meal <laughs> out of out of his screen time and perfectly extenuates the way this evil person tries to get away with what he can due to for the sole purpose or... Uh, reason of being money and whatnot like yeah. it's, it's it's very it's very despicable in a very subtle way until you learn the actual extent of his but evil. everything about it whether it be his explanation of becoming an art dealer which is like <laughs> hilariously gangster related yeah. um to his bizarre requests for coffee and that kind of thing yeah uh, I, I liked pretty much everything about his character and the way that johnny depp played that in this film um I think my biggest problem with this is actually the reveal of, of of the idea of the story because I felt like, for me at least, it did not live up to what it could have been. And not that it needed to be some like big, large reveal, but for me, like the aha moment was never really there. We kind of moved past it, it's... and then it was kind of explained post the aha moment of what happened. And I, I just... I just kind of didn't feel, as a first-time viewer, like it truly ever got like a great defining moment in it. We kind of went straight to that bizarre tribunal scene that we've already been mentioning, where he's walking through and explaining all this stuff, which seems like he just kind of pulls some of it out of his ass. And so. that's what I mean earlier about why doesn't uh, Brano Brano let him say a lot of the things? Because mm-hmm. okay. The way the novel is structured, sorry to be a nerd here, but <laughs> no, uh, be a nerd. The there's pre-murder, and you get to uh, meet everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the then we go into I think there's three major sections of a novel. So everything up until the murder, uh, it happens basically. So you get all of the um, the Poirot c- catching the train. You get the first night in the second day uh, lunch. And then that fateful night, which is, I really did like the way actually Brano filmed the night, which had very few, if any, cuts. So that way, when we see Poirot's perspective of the 
to ringing them the bells, which is extremely convoluted but also very important. Mm-hmm. We don't cut away from it, so we can't. We have to trust everything we see, just like Poirot does, which is we we. We we only have half of the story literally because we can see the hallway but we can't see the rooms and visually I thought that was a deft touch. Um, the second section of the novel mm-hmm. is Poirot investigates. It's literally the first chapter is the body. The next twelve chapters is his interrogation, which with each suspect, and then it goes into the third section, which is literally I think called Poirot sits and thinks, hmm. and. Um, he then works through every clue that the passengers could not expand upon, like the greasy stain on the passport um, and uh, a few other things and whatnot. So when you read the novel, by the time Poirot does reveal it, he's already pretty much pieced it together, and you can too. So there's never going to be a version of this that's going to be able to successfully somehow keep the audience in the dark, so to speak. Um, but what's fascinating to me year after year, anytime someone makes this story, is how like how exciting is it that a mystery can actually say to its audience that everything mattered in this case, the the lies and the alibis, because especially when you read it, it's not so much apparent in Brown's version, but mm-hmm. everything is crucial in him piecing this together like once he realizes it's a red herring then that in and of itself is a clue whereas a lot of detective stories it's like oh it's that random person who said that such and such happened on this night was just lying because their ex-husband found out that. shaggy <laughs> yeah um so here it's actually fun because Instead of going through a story in which you interrogate all these suspects and then the reveal happens and you realize that 11 out of 12 of these suspects don't matter to the story, that in and of itself can be defeating as a narrative and as the power of storytelling. Hmm. Here, no matter how outlandish it is, we especially if you rewatch it, like everything does matter. And I'm a little disappointed in the um, tribunal scene because there should have been a lot more of them explaining what they did and why they did it. And then there should have been Poirot teaching them what justice means because the novel has virtually none of that. That's always a new, uh, a lot of adaptations can't help but try to make Poirot be the moral voice or mm-hmm. compass to right. them, which is understandable because we're in a very different world than we were back then. Right. But the novel is quite literally, he says, there are two solutions. The first is this, the second is this. And then the director of the says one line like oh well I think the first sounds more reasonable don't you and Poirot goes okay then I retire and then he goes back to his car like that's <laughs> literally that's how it ends he's not there <laughs> that's to, awesome like he I, you can tell that he has feelings about it right. but he's not there to whatever yeah. um but this here my job. Yeah, yeah pretty much and so here um I don't understand why um Mrs. Hubbard or any of them don't kind of cool in onto a few simple things. One, that this is not a weird uh, master plan. Like, this is them. They were so hung up on the jury acquittal that they literally formed their own jury of 12 peers. Um, and nobody says that in this version. I don't quite understand that. I would have thought Brana would love that blunt metaphor. Um, and not only that, but that... Um, they don't really cast a light on one of my favorite um, 
ripples in this pond, which is that there is actually an innocent person in all this when it comes to the murder, which is uh, the Countess. Because, um, and that's what I'm curious as a first time viewer. Did you realize that that the Countess did not participate in the murder? I did not. Exactly. No, I just wanted no. like a first instant yeah. reaction. I thought that I saw her there. She was in the room, but the idea is this: that the count is the is her. She takes the. There truly are twelve murderers. There are thirteen of them, but the countess did not do it solely for plausible deniability because her actual identity is the closest to the case, being the sister of Daisy Armstrong's mother, who also died. So, literally, the reason why every time Poirot in, uh, interrogates the couple because they can't get them alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the husband does not want her to speak from the very moment because she's not involved with any of this, literally. And he's all upset because he is, and he did that for her. And um, the fact that, and so that's why I love that little spin on it too, is that even though everything has got this like outlandish, convoluted nature, there's still even more intricacies to it. Like it is 12 people, but one of these is so close to the subject that she didn't actually even participate and little things like that that Hmm. I don't understand why this version just doesn't say it out loud but she I mean I did notice in the flashback they don't show her stabbing him but uh, little little things like that Um, I thought the portrayal of those two were really bad Uh, (laughs) like only because they luckily they didn't have that much screen time but the count and the countess are not like crazy rude people the count it always goes like this in the book whenever Poirot needs to talk to them uh, the count will always very peacefully basically just say oh you can just talk to me she not really you know mm-hmm. and he's always like well I'd like to talk to her and then they and she then will always talk to him anyway like oh no don't worry hubby I got this so that's crucial because nobody should be fearful that Poirot will figure them out because they are all orchestrating this to lead Poirot down the wrong path. So the idea that they would be defensive defeats the entire uh, uh, ruse that they're all agreeing to put on. So that part was a little weak. One last thing. Mm-hmm. I will be. I, I am proud of Brano. He did not do something that I think even Sidney Lumet's version does, which is he doesn't play what I call backstage theater, where uh, characters will have conversations with each other for only the benefit of the audience. There's never a moment in this uh-huh. adaptation where he makes the cardinal sin of having two of the passengers like accuse each other, even though Poirot's not in the room. Mm. Everybody has a conversation that is organic to either the act that they're putting on in front of Poirot or they're not saying much at all uh, because Poirot's not in the room. After so, we're done yeah. between Daisy Ridley and uh, the, the doctors. Like, that yeah. doesn't count in that way? That's sort of like... No, because they're actually... She is talking about the murder. Okay. But she doesn't realize that Poirot was there or yeah. that Poirot would be on her train. Mm-hmm. And that's why she's very... She's the one who ref- mostly, especially in the novel, refuses to talk to Poirot mm-hmm. because he's the only person... And that's why he continues to talk to her because she's the only person who he shares a connection with uh, that exists outside this time and space mm. that he knows that if he can get pulled, If he pulls that thread, then yes. eventually he'll find something. So that's the tug of war there. So yeah. I will ask you this, yes. Nick, and um, you, know, you obviously have the most experience uh, yes. with this, but uh, something you did mention to me is that the doctor shooting Poirot is no in no other adaptation, and that it really There's doesn't a, make yeah. sense here? Um, it, it, which, to me, it seemed like 
kind of anticlimactic, and then also too he like just walks away and is fine whatever yeah. so I, uh I don't... dr arbuthnot or technically he should be colonel arbuthnot he should be a war person not really a doctor so to speak um in every adaptation he has to be a headstrong person so it's not so much that it's out of character but a it sets up a false climax because he admits to the murder and so i'm like i don't understand what his plan was then like mm. Was he? I guess he was going to try to kill Poirot, and it wouldn't have mattered what he said, but then he's performing. If he really thought he was going to do that, why didn't he just say, oh, we all killed her? You know what I mean? Like, why is he lying on top of a lie, even though he's about to kill the only person who would hear that lie? So that makes no sense. Well, he doesn't uh, want to kill him. He, he, he even has the line about how he, oh. he shot him at a certain point in the arm where he would not... Die or oh, right, because he's a sharpshooter and he yeah, should miss. But it make, but that makes it no, make that much less sense. I agree. And <laughs> so, um, one other adaptation flirted with this idea, but it's a much more realistic, uh, and that's the David Suchet portrayal. Because one clever thing about that is that they hint at what this movie rips open and really drives home, which is that in the BBC version, when Poirot reveals to them all that he knows exactly what happened and that it was all of them. He basically says, I'm going to go to the other car because this is fucked up, you know, and like leave them alone. So it's after Poirot has basically left the dining car, uh, Colonel Arbuthnot in that version just stands up with a gun and everybody pulls him back. Like, no, don't kill another person, you know, which is much more organic than I'm going to shoot you because you're talking to my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wow. I mean, that's pretty much. Two things I'll mention. Mm-hmm. Are we are we going to final ratings here? Oh yeah, we yes. are. We yeah. are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow, he's he's driving. The, he's he's. he's no, I mean, yeah. yeah, I I it seemed like he where he was going, so I wasn't yeah. sure. I was gonna say two things, and then I'll move into my final. Okay, ratings. he's okay. the conductor. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Um, two things that's interesting about this movie, but I don't know how well it works, is that two of these characters on board are not the original passengers, and I'm not understanding other than he wanted to change nationalities. So Pilar Estravados, played by Penelope Cruz, is taking the place of the Swedish character named Greta Olsen in all other versions. Uh, And the Cuban, who I don't remember his name, takes the place of uh, a character named Foscarelli, who's supposed to be Italian. And I guess, obviously, that's more white people. So I totally understand why you would change that. However, at least in the interest of the Italian, he is supposed to be, uh, how should we say this, prejudice against from the get-go because one of the <laughs> first things that uh, Monsieur Bouc points out uh, when the murder takes place is that the Italians love to use the knife and they're very passionate oh, about their whatnot. Oh, yeah. And that's the first thread that he pulls on. And then he's also continually, repeatedly a suspect because of the mafioso connection, mm-hmm. even though he's not actually a mafioso person at all. Um, so it, it goes... It fits in nicely with the theme of the first glance slash uh, uh, covers, you know. But here, he's just a regular Cuban person for the sake of what I don't know. Uh, And sure enough, Penelope Cruz, who is also Pilar Estravatos, is the name of a character in Hercule Poirot's Christmas, which is another novel. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why. She's clearly not playing the same character, but I guess Mm -hmm. as an Easter egg, she shares the name of a 
random side character. So, um, yeah, clearly we're going to get a, a Poirot cinematic universe because when he gets off the train, uh, yeah. oh. um, the call comes that there's been a death on the Nile, which is the second most famous uh, Poirot story ever written. So, you know, strap in your seatbelt, Laz, because we're probably going to get more. I'll go into my final ratings. I think... Kenneth Branagh does a pretty decent Poirot. He's very watchable. Uh, yeah, I'll admit he made me chuckle at uh, his Dickens and a few other things. Um, sometimes Poirot, the Poirot, sometimes Branagh, the director, gets in the way of the story itself. But at the end of the day, he didn't butcher it to the point of unrecognizability. So I enjoyed this. I thought it was worthy of the if bland, at least uh, enjoyable classicism that Bronau brings to this production. And I'm definitely going to watch it again. I, I honestly prefer this to Sidney Lumet's version. Not be- And Sidney Lumet is one of my all-time favorite directors. But that's mostly because of two things, which is A, I can't really stand Albert Finney's Poirot. And B, uh, goddamn, does Sidney Lumet's, whether he wrote the script, I don't know, but that adaptation completely... He did not, by Okay, the way. I didn't mm-hmm. think he did. Uh, that version, though, completely butchers the Armstrong backstory, A, because it opens the movie with 10 minutes of explaining that kidnapping case, which is kind of mm. crazy because you shouldn't know about it until Poirot remembers it. Mm. Uh, and it just becomes a chore once they're already going through things you just watched in the prologue. So mm. um, it does not come anywhere close to David Suchet's version. Okay. But overall, it was entertaining. Um, yep. So... I don't know if I, uh, I I feel like I did read this somewhere, but is there any sort of um, is, is does it take does this story take anything from the Charles Lindbergh? Story oh uh, yes, Agatha yes. Christie okay. was inspired by the two things: the Lindbergh uh, baby, baby, mm-hmm. and um, she actually was also inspired by not the Orient Express, but a train that was famously captured. To, uh, held captive in a snowbank. So, like, she okay. literally just combined and said, what if Poirot was on that train okay. and the Lindbergh baby? Because, cool. yeah. you know, when they were explaining the story, yep. the, the Lindbergh baby case came to my mind pretty yeah. quickly. Oh, actually, no. So, yeah. Christy, she didn't write, you know, quote-unquote, classic literature. Mm. She wrote pulps, you know, not pulp, pulp, mm. but she wrote... Uh, High-class pope. Pulp. Yeah, yeah, like sensational, like it would be today's Netflix drama. Like yeah. you just can't stop reading them, so to speak. Right, serious. Uh, yeah. And um, this character is so famous that one of my favorite pieces of writing anywhere is the New York Times obituary for Hercule Poirot oh. that ran in 1975, the day after she released his final oh, uh, current. that's and, awesome. You know, like this is a fictional character that got his own New York Times yeah. obituary. That's and dope. It's great. So... I give this movie three and a half out of five because it is very much uh, in service of its fans who love this story. Mm. Uh, But, man, I would think this would be one of the better blockbusters in years if it had truly nailed some of the intricacies of this case. But it's always fun to see on screen. Mm. Right on. I think that this was a... It was a very visually evocative film. I think that it was an enjoyable watch, but ultimately I was kind of let down by it. Um, 
and I wasn't able to understand why. It's like, like I said before, when Nick went on his extensive explanation of the history of this, like, don't, don't, yeah, it was great. I, I, I love learning more about this. Like, I want to actually like <laughs> well, go. You did. I want to go and read the actual original Agatha Christie, and I want to watch that actual television show because it sounds really fascinating. I want to learn more about Her- Hercule Poirot, and I don't feel like I got that from the film, but more of your enthusiasm for this story in general. It's like that's what I, was really pulling me to that story. But in this, I feel like I, I wish this, I wish. Kenneth Branagh's interpretation. Like com- Poirot as much as I did? <laughs> yeah, I wish he liked him as much as you did. I wish yeah, it, that, yeah. that this compelled me as much to to explore Agatha Christie's writing as much as your explanation of the history of, of, of Perot and Agatha Christie's like stories did. And I just feel like this is a great core story, but it feels like being served at a four-star restaurant and for no reason in particular – the waiter is Kenneth Branagh, and he is cutting my food for me, and he is scooping up my my potatoes, and he is putting dollops of gravy over everything, and he is shoveling it gingerly into my mouth. I'm like, can you? Here can, comes the airplane. Can you please just let me eat my fucking food? Like you don't know. It's like, oh no 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 no, you don't want to. It's like, oh you got to cut out this gristle and stuff. Like, well maybe I kind of like the gristle. It's like, no 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 no, that's, that's, that's not good. It's like, well why did you? Why, why did you? No, I, this is the way I like my steak. No 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 no. I know better than you, okay? It's like, now i got to make an airplane. Ooh, here comes the gun chase. <laughs> like, no, I, 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 I just can't stand that. I, I can't stand the, the simplification of something that could otherwise be more complex and more compelling had he not just rested on his laurels instead of, like, punching just a little bit higher. Um, and I would have liked it more if he had punched it a little bit higher and failed than to have just, like, played it safe. Yeah. Especially if you're going after something which I assume was supposed to be a passion project. I don't know who commissioned this. Like, yeah, I, I'm surprised that they thought there was a built-in audience. Exactly. Um, but I'm I, glad they did. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that it came out too. It's just it didn't really. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't really work for me personally. Okay. Um, I give it a two out of five. Okay. Yeah. By the way, uh, while he's cutting up your meat for you, Kenneth Branagh would also offer you all of his works autographed free of charge. Jesus Christ, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> That's actually my favorite performance of his in any of his films. Gilderoy? So. Yeah, from yep. uh, Chamber of Secrets? Yeah. 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 Yep. I agree. It's actually one of the best casted roles ever. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to get this We need guy. a pompous ass. <laughs> guy is full of himself. I'll play myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very lukewarm on this. I I thought this was kind of right in the middle. This had its moments. Also, it had its moments that weren't good. Um, and for a story that I have no previous connection to, um, you know, this didn't blow me away on a first pass. So, uh, I'm interested to see the other, um, adaptations of this going forward. I probably will honestly never read the book, but, um, I'm interested in the story because I think there, there's plenty here. Uh, it just, uh, you know, plays out in a bizarre way that has a lot of highs and lows throughout this film. So uh, I give this two and a half out of five. I think this is a this is a watchable film, uh, but at the same time, I don't think there's anything that's gonna bring people together to want to watch this a decade from now. But so. what did you think about Michelle Pfeiffer singing in the end credits? Meh. I didn't say for that. It was. I only know it was her because I read that it was going to be her. But yeah, it it was better than Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. 
why what did he do there oh he sings in the end credits and what it's an absolute disaster oh it's not an original piece of music oh god it's very bad he's got this like high tone it's not good look it up if you want to hurt yourself to. yeah <laughs> um so yeah that's my feeling on it. If uh, you out there have any feelings on Murder on the Order Express or any other versions of, of this film, feel free to always send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. So everybody's got uh, plans coming up here in the next few weeks uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday. I'll be going on a vacation for two weeks. Nick will be going on a trip. Toussaint, you usually have plans around Thanksgiving as you're visiting different yeah. people and your family. So we're going to take a couple of weeks off, um, although actually this episode, the next episode might be posted right after this yeah. one. So <laughs> it won't really seem like that uh, to anybody out there. But we'll be in the midst of December when we come back, which is exciting because there are quite a few titles that uh, are coming up in December, whether it be The Last Jedi or I, Tanya, or uh, Phantom Thread, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film. Hell yeah. Um, there's a lot of things to look forward to coming out uh, at the end of this year and in the early parts of 2018. One of them, for sure, is the new Guillermo del Toro film, which we'll be highlighting on episode 135, which is The Shape of Water. Um, the premise, I Water thought... Water doesn't have a shape. Thank you very much. It's a liquid, yes, I know. We, mm-hmm. Yes. I don't get it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's not... Um, it's like love, dude. It's like I have. I'll take that on record that other than the Hellboy uh, films, I'm very lukewarm on Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, I was interested in the premise, and I thought both trailers for this were fantastic. So, and it's got Michael Shannon, which is always a win. So I'm looking forward to this, and I know you guys both are too, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Yes. We'll be talking about that on our next episode. Yeah. Actually, that might be episode 135. Yeah. Did I say 134? I don't know what you said. Okay. At any rate, <laughs> it's on our next episode, which will be coming up in a few weeks. So look forward to that. From... You just started talking about Murder on the Orient Express and just checked out. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. Nick is spent. Yeah. yeah. I. Where am I? <laughs> so thank you to these two guys, Nick Cheney. Oh. And Tucson Egan. We, mon ami. And thank you out there for catching up with us here on Film Tank. We will catch up with you next time. Oh, before you hit the button, mm-hmm. Poirot doesn't talk about his little gray cells. I don't know why somebody else would have that line except for him, but that's his whole stick. He always says how he needs to have his little gray cells do the work, which oh. is his brain cells and his little hair. That's his like eccentricity, his, yes. his little idiosyncrasy. So, yes. Just saying, he never mentioned it, okay. but one time someone says it to him as if it's their catchphrase. Yeah. Huh. Anyway. Okay. Thank you for that nice Daniel Wannick. You're welcome. All right. Catch up with you next time. Ron Burgundy.